Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Better Business Podcast. I am your host, Steve Cook, and today we have a unique episode. We are mashing together a few clips from some of our most memorable and favorite interviews from the podcast, the 70 plus episodes that we've had so far. These are a few mashups and some of our favorite thoughts that we've had so far. So I hope you enjoy. Starting or growing your business is hard work. But now you are listening to the Better Business Podcast with me, Steve Cook, and I'm going to try and make it a little easier on you. We on this podcast help you grow a better business with real advice from professionals, and today is no different. How do you know when you when you want to hire somebody? How do you, is there, what if you have a weird feeling, but you don't know what it was? What if you have, what is, what is kind of a gut instinct or, or how do you do that? So keep asking the questions, get through some of your information. Sometimes it's easy to get, um, I used this term last week and I got laughed at, but whatever. Um, you get a rush crush on a candidate and you're like, (laughs) they're going to be wonderful. Cause their resume (gasps) seems so perfect. Yeah. And then they're really personable. Yeah. And so, but get through the interview guide, stay on script. Um, And, and what I love with that too, is when you're using even behavioral based questions. So these are the cringe worthy sometimes tell me about a time when what you're trying to draw out is the actual experience somebody has had in, in that particular skill or situation before because when you ask questions from more of the hypothetical like what would you do or what should you do people know what they should do i know that there's several things i should do that doesn't mean that that's what i have done uh so we want to we want to get that information from there but i love using star um as my framework for listening to a candidate's interview answers and it's a framework that's that has been taught and I learned it years ago in prepping as a candidate for behavioral based interviews. And it stands for situation or task. So in this question, tell me about a time you had to work with someone you didn't like. What was the situation or task? What action did I take? And then what happened as a result? And so for me, as somebody who thinks out loud, um, a lot and can talk in circles. It's a good way f- to keep me on task in an interview, but I love it on the side of the interviewer because it keeps my follow-up questions very, uh, very tight and very connected to the question that I actually want to know the information about. And the follow-up questions are always the same. What was the situation or task? What was the action that you took and what happened as, as a result? And wherever I don't have one of those areas, I go back and I that's my follow-up question. Oh, so Steve, I heard this. So what actions did you take? What was the result of that? And so it gives you that framework for it. And I've been disappointed by candidates that I really wanted to hire. Um, when I we applied that and when I've used that in framing up how they were answering those questions. And so the more you can do to your question of staying on task with what is the behavior, what is the experience I'm looking for, and making sure that you get all of the good stuff. Because sometimes people give you a really great answer. And then when you dig further, because you didn't get all the elements of star, you'll find out that they actually 
played a very minimal role on that team or in that experience. And it, it isn't as good as you thought. And talking about that rush crush, I've, I've legitimately <laughs> caught myself. So they have like a perfect resume. They have a whatever degree they worked in your industry for this many years, blah, blah, blah. I've literally caught myself like you were talking about, um, like framing up questions for them to just like slam dunk it. And they're like, not, and I'm like, Oh, please. You know, I'll be like, so tell yes. me about, you know, when you, you know, why did you quit your last job? And they start trashing their boss or whatever. I'm like, but he was probably, you know, like, no. please don't do that. Cause that shows that, you you know, or whatever. <laughs> and so I've actually caught myself like cutting them off or whatever. Like, Oh, right, right, right. I understand what you're saying. And it's just me and them in the interview. I don't know why I do it, but it's just like, please don't say that, you know, or whatever. That is such good self-awareness though. Right. Where you're like, okay. <laughs> I so, I so much want them to succeed. I'm noticing that I'm doing this. Yes. Yeah. It's so sad, but I've caught myself doing that several times. Um, that means you're human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the hardest well, thing to do in interviews is just be quiet. It's incredible what people tell you. Yes. If you just hush. Mm-hmm. But, um, One of the other things that I, that I would say that we have seen even more now recently is the urge to hire somebody. It's like, because the labor market is so tight, our expectations have dropped. Yes. And which can make sense, right? We hear the somebody is better than nobody. So I'm going to bring people in. So people drop their expectations. What we have found in that process is they drop their expectations across the board mm-hmm. of of they're not asking those interview questions. They're not doing star. They're going into it with, we'll hire them anyway. And maybe you will, but continue to ask those questions because what you're doing there is you're setting the bar high, letting them know what's important to you, letting them know that you're taking this seriously, letting them know that they need to do more than just show up. And you may still decide to hire them, but I would rather have somebody be below my expectations if my expectations are here than below my expectations if they're here. <laughs> and then it sends a message of um, they need me so badly that all I need to do is show up. So yeah. there's your bar. Or they need me so badly, I don't even know if I need to show up. <laughs> Where if you, if you continue on the questions and the process and you hold tight to that, even in this labor market, and keep those expectations high, you'll get a better end result. Yeah, that's great advice. So let me ask you this. What if someone's made it through chapter one and they're like, hey, you know what? He's right. I, I do have a, a responsibility to take this product and, and and get it to the masses. But somebody just doesn't have the money to market, to advertise. What would you say to that person? Oh, thank God you don't have the money. You got a chance now. My, money goes after the obvious. You know, if you had hundreds or thousands of dollars, you may hear, you know, run Facebook ads. That's what everyone's doing. Money goes often to where the best practices are. And uh, there's a sad lie that's perpetuated that if your marketing isn't working, you haven't done enough of it yet. And so we're like, well, I didn't get those Facebook conversions. Maybe I need to do it in a bigger way. And uh, sometimes it's the case, but rarely is that the case. Most often it's that we're blended in that we've hit this thing called habituation in the prospect's mind, meaning I've seen that hey friend before, <laughs> I don't need it. So when you don't have money, you're forced to do different. Uh, I've actually now written up about a hundred different ideas that cost nothing or, or near nothing. I'll give you an example. One thing I did is I observed what my contemporaries were doing, other authors, 
And I saw that everyone does an email blast, you know, uh, white background, black text, maybe there's a picture in there, buy my book. So I'm like, okay, if everyone's doing black on white, what if I was the first guy to do white on white, AKA invisible? So I sent out an email, it was white text, white background. There was a one line in there that you could read in black text that said, this may be the first ever invisible ink email you've received. Click and drag below to highlight your message. Get out of here. And uh, you'd highlight it and sure enough, it would pop it on the screen because now it's, it's highlighted over. And that one, the open rates were four times uh, and the click-through rates four times what I've experienced with any of my other emails. And if you think about it, it applied the, the dad framework. It was different. How many invisible ink emails do you get? Uh, it was attractive because it invoked curiosity. Maybe it harkens back to when we were children, we used to pass secrets and stuff in school or, or use an invisible ink marker to reveal a message. And I had the direct built in there with the message. I told him, here's the action to take. Now you've seen this, um, to be more engaged with the work I'm doing. And uh, that was wildly successful. That's one idea that would, if, if you already have an email system, it costs nothing more to just change the text to white. And that's the type of stuff we want to look at subtle or, or simple changes that have an extraordinary impact. You got to be careful giving all this advice because then if everyone starts doing it, you become not different. So you got to be careful with that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. It, that's a great point, Steve. So it's funny. Um, I, I, that is one, I have a hundred ideas like that. And uh, many of them I'm using right now. Here's why uh, I, I think it's a good idea to give the advice away. First of all, it is shocking how few people do it because it takes courage. We have to get over that devil of being bothersome or I'm not, I don't have enough time or being weird. And most people won't get over that. So there's a little threat there to me. The second thing is we're in such a diverse set of businesses. I'm the author doing that. Now, if, if other authors do that exact same thing, now I'm compromised. It's, it's, it's washed true. out. But if someone does it in the welding industry and someone does it in, I don't know, potato farming, it will work in all these categories because it's the first time the clients experienced it. It's the first time they're receiving that. Hey friend, honestly, Hey friend still works. If your community's never seen that before. True. So I put them out there. And uh, sure enough, people will replicate it, but it's going to take time. And when they do, it simply inspires me to create more. I, I don't want to stick with my one idea. I want to constantly be expanding. So that's why I put them out there. So the theme today is uh, talking to a person that owns a restaurant, owns a, as you're familiar with, a pizza joint, yeah. uh, owns a coffee shop, something similar to that. And want to talk about how to, how do you market that? Um, obviously, and there's a general theme of marketing that can be the same for um, all businesses, but specifically, how do you market a restaurant or a pizza shop or a coffee shop, something like that? You know, social media, social media is the easiest way to, to market a, a business. You, when I first started back in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, direct mail was the way that you got your message out as a restaurant, you use direct mail pieces. And that was because there was no social media, like it was around, but it wasn't like it is today. And as prevalent as it is for people who are in 2021, if they're listening to this, like social media is a part of their lives every single day, you can't go through a day and not look at your phone or hop on a social media platform and kind of see what's going on in the world. Back in the day, direct mail was the way to do that. So you just I have remember to remember the, the pizza coupons and stuff like that. I remember that. I yeah. mean, that was a big part of, of, of going to get pizza and stuff like that. Yeah. Especially. I mean, it's still, it's still a great form of advertising. I just don't think it's the form of advertising that it once was, but social media is the way if, and you can see who the places are, who are the most well-known brands in any area by how much they create content on social media and what platforms they're very prevalent on. 
So let's take Irving Media Group for an example. What do you what do you specifically feel like you guys are an expert in um, as it relates to this this idea of marketing a restaurant that could help small business owners? What do you think you guys do differently? I try to cre- I try to have the restaurants create a brand around their restaurant, and it's hard to do because owners generally don't like to be the person behind the brand. They like to just kind of sit in the background and put out those coupons and put out those flyers and let their employees or management run the show. But in today's world, people really want to know who they're doing business with and who they're purchasing from, especially if you're an independent restaurant. It's very important for the person who is the person running the brand to be the face. Uh, And, you know, a lot of owners don't want to do that. They're very shy when it comes to being on video. They're very uh, hesitant to put their face in their in their personality out there but it's really in 2021 it's the best way to really grow any social media platform and then turn those viewers slash followers into customers and a loyal fan base so let me ask you this what if someone's listening to this and they um are like yeah i'm the person that doesn't want to be the the face i don't want to be involved do you think it's possible in like you said 2021 atmosphere to create a brand without having the face of an owner or the face of a person would you choose a different person in the business or would you choose a a mascot or something like that or or is there other ways around it it's just maybe not quite as effective Listen, if you're a local business, you are part of the community, whether you like it or not. And that's just part of doing business in 2021. If, if you're a franchise, it's a different story. There's rules and regulations within the franchise that you have to follow. But if you're an independent local business owner, restaurant, pizzeria, you are part of the community. And that's how you build. Everybody always says community involvement is how you grow. That's the same thing when it comes to promoting yourself on social media. People want to follow a person. They don't want to follow a brand or a logo. So if you are a business owner who is hesitant to put yourself out there, either deal with it and find somebody who you can partner with. The hard part about finding someone that you can have be the brand is like that person has no vested interest in the business. And if that person decides to leave or move on, you've built your whole brand around somebody who isn't a long-term person in the business. So you have to make sure you partner with the right person. Um, but if you don't want to do it, like you have to make a decision. Do I want to be a local business owner and do I want to grow my business or do I want to feel bad or nervous or anxious about p- creating a dumb video for Instagram? Sometimes you just got to get over it and do it, even though you don't want to. <laughs> so l- let's take this even a step farther. So say, what if your your spiel has convinced someone and they're like, fine, I need to be the face. Is it, um, you know, a video about come buy my pizza, um, you know, come, come get my, my delicious, uh, dessert at our restaurant. Um, what, what would you recommend somebody to do beyond that? If they, if they do accept that they need to be the face of the company, I'd say first thing you have to do is what market are you in? Where are you located in the country or the world? And then look at what platforms are most popular in your area. So for me, that's probably like TikTok, Instagram, and I'm in the Boston metropolitan area. It's a younger demographic of people. Yes, there are older people here, but if I was to say I'm gonna start on a platform, probably Instagram and TikTok, if I'm a restaurant are the two I'm gonna start on in my particular area. So all right, I've decided what platforms I'm gonna use. The next step is to go onto those platforms and before you create any content, get to know the platforms. What videos do you see getting the most engagement, getting the most reach, getting the most 
uh, likes and comments and shares? And why are they the most popular ones? Like, what is it about that content that is resonating with the people in your area? And I would spend a week or two or even a month really just diving deep into the platform to understand what types of content people are resonating with on that platform. And then I would start creating content based on my research. I wouldn't just go on there and be like, hey, this is Bruce. I'm owner of Bruce's Pizza. Here I am on Instagram, buy my pizza. Like that would be awkward and nobody would buy from you. <laughs> Getting into your business even farther. Um, let's say that someone wants to, um, de they're deciding on their product offering or they're evaluating their product offering. I noticed that you don't have a ton of different um, products. Why do you, why do you choose the amount of products you have and, and how many products do you offer? There's a lot of, that's a loaded question, Steve. <laughs> Like, um, you know, to be honest, I like to do things different. Um, I know that in my industry as a whole, not just in the state of Oklahoma, because really the state of Oklahoma is irrelevant with the candy industry in a lot of sure. ways, but in the industry as a whole, chocolate is overdone. Um, that's why I don't do chocolate. Like I, I have to niche down and find my uniqueness, whether it be our product itself or the packaging or how we market it. Um, but for me, the caramel accidentally happened. And then I took that accidental start. Did you even like caramel? And expanding from there. Yeah, I do, oh, okay. but okay. it was my dad. My dad is a caramel or was, uh, we lost him almost 10 years ago, but he loved anything caramel. It was like anything from a Milky Way to he'd sit down with a whole bag of craft caramels, which are hard as a rock and will break your teeth, but he would eat them. And so, you know, my dad was a foodie. I learned how to cook from my dad. And so when I wanted to make a sweet treat um, or a treat for friends and family in his memory at Christmas, um, I, I mean, it took me months to decide on what I was going to test and try. And one day it just hit me like, oh my gosh, dad loved caramel. Like that's what he was always doing. It was either that or licorice jelly beans. And there's no <laughs> way I'm doing anything with licorice. That's disgusting. Um, but like, oh, gross. You know, I actually, as a joke, I don't know if you could see it, but well, there we go back there on the wall. Um, there's a canister of licorice Twizzlers just for that's display, funny. just because my dad liked licorice, but there's nothing else that's licorice awesome. in the store. But, you know, for me, it was taking that one product that gave us our accidental start, creating the brand around it, and then looking at the market as a whole and what's not out there and what would be cool or interesting that our demographic would be interested in. And so we, over time, tested and expanded on flavors of caramel. Then we added a toffee and then we've, you know, created um, a payday type candy bar. You know, it's, it's not a payday, obviously, because it doesn't have nougat in it, but it's our whiskey caramel with peanuts around it. So it's like a payday on steroids, but, um, product creation is just, I'm a creative mind naturally. So after rabbit holes, trend watching, uh, being part of the industry newsletters and see what flavor profiles are coming up, mm. it's been easy to create new things. But I also know from a company, the size of ours, and because everything is made by hand, we can't have you know, 200 SKUs. There's just not enough time to be able to hand create that many SKUs. So um, we keep it pretty small, but it's the 80-20 rule for any items that you, you know, market kind of like your workforce, the 80-20 rule. So um, we've chosen to stay small to make sure that we never overpromise and under deliver on what our capabilities are. If you had, speaking of, of staying small, let's say you had 10 times the budget you have now whether you took on an investor, you, you know, had, you won the lottery or whatever you want to, 
imagine a, um, happening and you had 10 times the budget you have now, what would you spend it on? What do you think you're, you could um, do better? Well, or? logistically, I've got um, in the back of my mind a few things that would help us scale uh, equipment wise um, in like packaging. You know, I, I'm there's an internal battle within myself wanting to stay artisan and what that definition of artisan means. So it's like, where can we push that envelope on equipment assistance to help with scale and growth, but also maintain that that artisan quality? So for us right now, it would be a couple of pieces of equipment for packaging. But beyond that, it would be to grow our brand even further. So we have shipped to all states except Vermont. Why? Dang it, Vermont. Know. Let's go. <laughs> I know. I don't know. Like we ship a lot I'm gonna, like, to Texas. Publish, Florida, I'm going to do like paid ads in Vermont for this. <laughs> right. Once. Well, and here's the deal. Like I could do that, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not going to do that. I want it to happen naturally. Like I have all these little. You should do like a marketing thing behind it. Like everyone but like, Vermont loves our candy. We're gonna do this. <laughs> well, and it's like we bootstrapped to this company, you know? So it's like, now that's not to say that if, you know, someone came and knocked on the door tomorrow and wanted to buy us, that it wouldn't be for sale for the right price. Okay. But I think every small um, business owner says that. <laughs> I naturally love a challenge and I'm a goal setter and I will like take the top goal and break it down to daily and hourly activities to reach that goal. That's just how I'm wired. And so for the 10X budget, honestly, it would be to expand on our marketing and our brand. Um, but when, when you do that and you naturally get the extra orders from it, then you have to make sure you have the internal support to handle that volume change. So there'd have to be a balance between operational expenses and marketing. Um, if we had that bigger budget. So. Yeah. So let me ask you this to relate this to every small business owner or business owner that, um, they're they're hearing about this this unique stuff and this this crazy stunts that you do and things like that and they're like man that sounds fun i'm gonna do it and then they get made fun of or they they're scared that it's not gonna work and they're gonna look stupid or whatever it might be how do you overcome that fear do you know which major league hitter has struck out more than anyone that ever played the game which major league hitter has failed more than anyone that's ever played the game I'm not sure. I'm not a, I'm not a staunch baseball guy. Very few people are, but it's like, <laughs> like, like my point is this guy failed more than anyone. He struck out more than anyone that ever played the game, but he's not known for his strikeouts. He's known for his three home runs in game six, of the 1977 world series. He's known as Mr. October. He's a hall of famer. It's Reggie Jackson. My point here is people don't forget your strikeout. People, people don't, don't remember the strikeouts. They don't, they don't remember them. Amazon, Jeff Bezos, we talk about that, one of the greatest innovators of our time. How many people are talking about the Amazon Fire phone today? It was a $200 million failure. My point is, what's your next at bat? We fail every day at the ballpark because we're trying so many new things. People don't remember the failures. And you either have a success or you have a story. If you have a great failure, that's a tremendous story. <laughs> so yeah. it's how you look at it. So my point is, people are so afraid. But the reality is, people are in their own bubble. They're focused on their own things. And a failure is only a big failure if you don't get back up to bat. And most people don't keep coming to bat. They do this big failure and then they're so scared because they failed, they're not going to try anything new. Yes, then people might remember because it's the last thing you did. What are you going to do next? What's the next at bat? So that's how I challenge people. It's like have so many at bats that you're due to get a hit. So you've been you've been written about in multiple articles. You've been written about, like I was talking about before we started recording, in, in different books and things like that for your unique branding or your unique customer experience, whatever you want to call it. And you wouldn't be this 
obviously well known if it wasn't uh, unique and different than everything else. But let me ask you this. How do you come up with something different? Because all you can see is what everybody else is doing. How do you how do you specifically come up with different ideas? Do you is it from a cartoon show? Is it from a, a books you read or anything like that? Like how do you how do you come up with with unique things to to do for branding or marketing? Maybe that's due to come. I have two three year olds, but it's not cartoon shows. <laughs> at this point. I, that's that's not, that's not where they're coming from. Uh, the greatest ideas come from problems, frustrations, challenges. The greatest ideas come from putting yourself in your customer's shoes. So the greatest ideas for us, the biggest innovate, not the craziest ones, the crazy ones are different, but the biggest ideas, it starts from friction points for your customer. So literally, if you just look at the customer experience that you have in your industry and write down every friction point, every frustration point and every starting point. So for instance, baseball, long, slow and boring, huge friction point. So for us, we looked at, all right, what would it take to have nonstop entertainment? How could we have music, the band? How could we have people getting interacting when they're coming to the ballpark? How could our bathrooms have entertainment? And that's why we literally have make and bacon urinal cakes where our fans are actually <laughs> peeing on our arrival. So you think about all the points which long, slow, and boring and having fun. The next friction point, you go to a stadium, you go to a ballpark, you get nickel and dimed. Steve, you've been there. $5 yeah. for parking, you know, $15, $20 for your ticket. $3 for a program, $8 for a soda. You keep going. I said, that's a $30 for nachos. Yeah. yeah with just <laughs> way too much cheese or way too little cheese. They never perfect the amount of cheese. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> but so we looked at the friction points there. We said, well, that sucks. You know, I don't want to keep pulling money out of my pocket. Every time I have to pull my credit card is a friction point. Every, every pay point is a pain point. So if you think about that, that's a good story. Every time someone has to pay, how do you make it frictionless or how do you make it remarkable? But anyways, so put aside the point. That's a friction point. So we said, could we make every ticket all inclusive? So now you come to our game. There's no ticket fees, no convenient fees, no parking fees. You have one ticket includes all your burgers, hot dogs, chicken sandwiches, soda, water, popcorn, and dessert, everything for $20 total. So you look at those friction points. And so I think for any industry you say, all right, you know, and your customer, what if, what if people don't like about this industry? And what would be the exact opposite of doing that? If they hate, you know, if you think about lawyers being charged every few minutes, every 15 minutes for an email, you know, if you think about obviously the cab industry and what Uber did, you think about Airbnb, all the biggest innovations come from frustration points. So that's where I challenge everyone to start. And that's where we continue to think about walks are boring in a baseball game. So we developed yeah. a new rule. They're called a sprint and banana ball on the fourth ball. Literally, the, the, the umpire goes ball four sprint and the hitter takes off full speed the catcher has to throw the ball to every position player before it's live and the hitter's running around and it's usually a double maybe a play a third it turns the most friction boring part of baseball into kind of exciting and so like we've looked at this at every piece of the experience and that's how you can really start to innovate Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Better Business podcast with me your host Steve Cook you know, starting or growing a business is hard work. So I hope that today's advice made it just a little bit easier for you. We'll be sharing more about this exact topic all this week on my social platforms. You can find me on Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, or if you would like to get a, a personalized blog post from me on this topic, you can join my email list and I will send you an email once a week. You can check the show notes to subscribe to that or find me on my website, whatever's easier for you. Now get out there and go grow a better business with this advice from today's Real Pros. Thank you for listening.